Hello, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm the worship leader at Vintage Faith Church. At Vintage Faith, we believe the Word of God is what changes and transforms a person. We hope you enjoy the next 30 to 40 minute sermon of the Word of God being proclaimed and explained. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. There's a lot of faces. I hope we're all eager to grow closer to Christ Jesus this morning. There's quite the crease mark in my Bible here for 1 Peter. Uh, We are going verse by verse by verse through 1 Peter. And this morning, the the reading is 1 Peter chapter 3, 17 to 22. 1 Peter 3, 17 to 22. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, good morning. morning. A few announcements before we get rolling here this morning in in 1 Peter. Um, If you don't know, we have many Bible study groups here at Vintage Faith. And and through the last year, the pandemic, some of those kind of went dark and quiet for a bit. And and some went online. Um, But I I just wanted to, as we start getting back to normal, whatever that may look like as we start moving in that direction. Here are the current groups that are operating. I just want you to to know this and kind of know what's going on. First of all, the women, they meet with what they call adoration one time a month, and they're beginning the Book of Romans in the fall. The men, we've been meeting one time per month. On Saturday, we are going through the Book of James together. Donna Cooper has a midweek Bible study on Colossians. If if that interests you, see Donna. Monday nights, Dave Pettit has been studying Psalm 119, and they're meeting here at the church on Monday nights. So if you have any interest in any of those studies, come to me, come to to those people if you know who they are. I am going to begin my my Bible study. It's going to be a midweek study in the fall we're gonna be doing a sermon series called Made in His Image. And you guys have had a year of me and and maybe you've noticed that I don't necessarily back away from some of the hot topic issues in the culture. I, I like taking those head on, not because I like controversy. I just think Christians need to be educated and need to talk about these things. We live in a world right now that that is screaming another gospel. Um, And I I do believe that this one doctrine, 
that we are made in the image and likeness of God speaks to so many of the issues today that we see in our world. Suicide rates, babies in the womb, race, ethnicity, justice. It speaks to all of it. I believe that the church right now has an opportunity because it is getting dark out there that we can hold the truth up and that it's going to shine in the darkness. But we need to know it. We need to know why we believe the things that we believe. So we're going to be doing probably an eight-week sermon series that's going to be called Made in His Image, all about being made in the image of God from Scripture and how these, that this doctrine speaks to many of the issues today. We will also be doing the midweek Bible study on this book, which is called Reenchanting Humanity. It's a systematic theology on what it means to be human. So this is what I'm going to be doing the midweek study from, if anyone is interested. It is thick, but it's also very good. Um, you can check that out or talk to me, and I can help you get a copy. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you alone are King and Lord and God. Many of us come in here this morning just ha having a tough week, struggling, maybe not so much thinking about you or thinking about our own problems. Lord, help us to unburden our hearts as we hear your word. Help us to bring our problems to you and lay them at the foot of the cross. Lord, help us to remember that you are on the throne and that we can take great comfort in that truth. God, speak to us through your word. Unite us in mind and heart as a congregation. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this week's scripture, as, as Evan pointed out, we've been in Peter for a while, and, and we're kind of pushing to the end of it. We're, we're, we're getting to the end. And here we have another reason, by the way, why we go through scripture like we go through scripture, because you're going to come to places in the Bible when you do it this way that you're like, I would never choose that piece of scripture to preach. Sometimes it's just a hard thing to say, and you know it's going to rattle some cages. Sometimes it's, I don't quite understand this. And that's what we're dealing with today. In fact, we're in Peter, and Peter says of the Apostle Paul in 2 Peter, he says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So we have Peter here saying, hey, Paul, he can sometimes be hard to understand. You can actually take what he says when he means this, 
and, and twist it and make it mean something else. And today we're going to look at Peter, which what he says, we have to scratch our heads and say, I, I don't quite understand what he's talking about. In fact, as I was studying the scripture that we're going to look at today, <clears throat> I came across a quote from Martin Luther, the, the reformer. And Luther says this, of this text that we're going to dig into today. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. So how's that? We're digging in today, and we've got Martin Luther saying, I don't know. I don't know what he means. Um, but what I would say whenever we come across Scripture that can confuse and confound us, we need to let the plain interpret, the plain meaning interpret the, the harder meaning. So <clears throat> we'll get there in a minute. All right. So last week, Evan did a fantastic job. I, I listened to his sermon, and uh, he, there are a few things that, that I want to kind of jump off that he, that he said. Number one, he said that the word suffer is used 22 times in the book of 1 Peter. Suffer or suffering. This book is all about suffering. It's all about suffering for being a Christian. As a Christian, you will suffer for the name of Christ. And we've talked about in previous sermons, you have this tension. We live in a world that, that really wants to even push Christians to say, okay, it's okay, you can worship Jesus, but you don't go there. Don't, don't go here or don't go there. Because if you do, then, then forget about it. You're, you're hateful. You're unloving. And we have that tension, and we can kind of relieve that tension and agree or not talk about it, or we can go with love into that tension and say we believe the Bible says this and this is why we believe that it's good for you. This is why we believe when the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman, we believe it's good and this is why we believe it's good. That's part of the apologetics and the, and the defense of the faith Last week, just a few verses from last week, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. We live in a day and an age where sometimes this Christian talk about suffering for the name of Christ is just, it, it's completely lost on us. It's just lost on us. Now, I think we're heading into to a place where we're going to start to feel a little pain. We're not going to have the social capital and the, the cool uh, currency as Christians in this world. I think about my children and the younger generation. They're going to grow up in a whole different world, and they need to be equipped with the why. Yes, the Bible says this, but why does it say it? Stephen Niels wrote a book called The History of Christian Missions. 
And he talks about why Christianity grew so much in the first, second, third century. And he says this, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. Think about that for a moment. We're not there. We don't have to think about that. But Niels makes the case in, in, in his book that this is why Christianity grew, because if you were converting to Christianity, you knew that I could die for believing this message, that I could die for giving this message. And you think about church history, all the apostles, with the exception of John, who, who survived but all the apostles were murdered for their testimony. Murdered for their testimony. The normal thing for almost all of Christian history is that it's a risk to be a Christian. John Piper says this, most of the world in most of history has to reckon with terrible suffering for being Christians. Jesus said, you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And I know as I say that, that, that there's some of you in here that are like, I don't want that Christianity. I know that. I don't want that. I don't want that Christianity. I want a Christianity that I, that, that, that's me and, and, and God and, and no, doesn't upset anyone. And we all want that. But the reality is the gospel message is offensive. The cross is an offense. Paul talks about it as the offense of the cross. And we'll talk about why that is here in a minute. But I would ask you this morning, are you willing to suffer for following Christ? And that suffering might just be a few people don't like you. I think about my, my children and I, I know what they're up against in the public schools. It's not okay to believe what the Bible says about much of how to live life. It's not okay today to believe that. Are you willing to suffer for following Christ? And then I would ask to, to dovetail on what Evan was talking about last week. Are you prepared to give a defense for your faith. And he said something about, are you preparing? Pre being prepared implies that you're actually preparing, you're doing work to, to give a defense for why you believe the gospel. And I would just ask this morning, are you putting that work in? Are you preparing for that? All right, so last week, verse 17 ended with Peter saying this. So I want to connect this week's message to last week because I think if we connect them, we're going to clear up some of the, some of the ambiguities in, in the text. Last week, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This week, 1 Peter 3.18, 4. So 4 is connecting us back to last week and suffering. For Christ also suffered... Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive in the Spirit. So why is it okay to suffer? And should we be blessed by suffering for the name of Christ? Because Christ also suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. When we suffer for the name, we are walking in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, of our Christ. A few chapters back, Peter had said this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So Christ, in one sense, is our example. He suffered for the truth. We, too, suffer for the truth. But what did Christ suffer for? Well, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. For sins. What did Christ suffer for? For your sin. For my sin. Not his sin, for our sin. This isn't very popular today. There is a big part of Christianity that that is existing today, especially in America, that doesn't talk about sin and kind of talks about, hey, Jesus is going to give you your best life, which I do agree with, but not in the way that it is usually stated. He's going to help you reach your full potential. Come to Jesus. He's going to help you. You need Jesus. And I would submit to you today that, that Peter's he's going right at it. And he's like, no, you, you do need Jesus, but you need Jesus because of your sin. Your sin separates you from a holy and righteous God. You need Jesus. You need the cross. You need the substitute because of your sin. And I would ask this morning, when you think about Jesus, what do you want out of Christ? When you think about Christ, what are you looking for? Do you think following him is going to give you a better life? That house that that you want? That girlfriend, that boyfriend? You think that your life is going to be blessed? And and if it's not blessed, are you confused? Like, hey, what's going on? I, I don't know why all this is happening to me. I'm following Jesus. And then all of a sudden, I'm surprised that, that my life isn't what I thought that Jesus could give me. And Peter goes on to say that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is that aspect of the cross that I, I think is offensive to people. The cross had to happen because men and women, me and you, cannot keep the law of God. We've all fallen short. And the cross is offensive because it screams that, that the Son of God had to die for humanity 
that your sins put Jesus on the cross. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 said, the law, the law of God shuts the mouths of everyone. Shuts the mouths of everyone. What he means is we can't boast before God. We can't say, but God, yes, I'm a good person. But God, yes, but I opened up the door for this this old lady, and, and God, I do so many good things. And, and Paul says, no, the law of God shuts us up. And the cross is saying the same thing. You needed the Son of God, not your own works, to be right with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and he, he says it pretty strongly. He says, how do you know whether a man is a Christian The answer is that his mouth is shut. I like this forthrightness of the gospel. People need to have their mouths shut, stopped. They are forever talking about God and criticizing God and pontificating about what God should or should not do and asking, why does God allow this and that? You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut, stopped and you are speechless and have nothing to say. That's a hard saying, but it's true. Lloyd-Jones isn't talking about don't say anything at all ever. He's talking about you have nothing to say to God that you have any works to bring him. You bring nothing to God but your sin. And he brings everything to you in his son. Lloyd-Jones is talking about getting to this point as Christians where we just say, Lord, not my will, but your will. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I I've lived my life, I've done, I've had my ideas about how life works and I've messed up at every possible road that I've taken. I need you, Lord, I will stop. You speak, I won't speak. That's what Lloyd-Jones is getting at. That's what Peter is getting at here, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There's no other way to God but through Christ. All of humanity is trying to kick that door down back into paradise, back into Eden, whether it's through politics or through philosophy or through materialism. They're trying to get back to paradise. And Jesus Christ says, I am the door. You will not get back into paradise, but through me. And that way is the way of the cross. It's everything. And it's everything and it's being taken out of Christianity. I would just warn you, whatever books you read, whatever church you end up at, make sure they're preaching the cross. Because Paul says that's the power of Christianity. All right, let's move on. So we're getting now to the scripture that Martin Luther says, I don't know. I don't know what this means. <laughs> All right? 
So what, what I want to do, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I, I want to break it down and talk about there are three historical views, and I'm going to put my cards on the table right now. I don't lean towards a view here. There's two out of the three that I do lean, would. One that I would reject, and you'll see. And I, I don't want to say, I don't think it matters, but I, I am not there. So I'm going to be breaking this down um, for you, and you can do a little extra study on it yourself. All right, here we go. First Peter 3, 19 to 20, in which he, who is Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, so we're going to, let's, let's look at this here and, and break it down. First, I got a, a quote. I don't think I have it on the screen, but I'll read it. Ed Clowney. He says this, Peter's words were no doubt clear to those who first heard them, but they have been hard for later generations to understand. So again, this is Clowney, Luther, Calvin. Everyone's quoted, quoted on this, this verse and said, not sure what he means. Here are the questions if, if you're doing good Bible reading that you've got to ask. What did Jesus proclaim? What was his message? When did he actually proclaim it? Who were, the spirits in who were the spirits and what was the prison? Those are the questions. All right. The three historical interpretations, which again are held very loosely, um, let's go through them right now. First one. This verse refers to Christ's preaching through Noah to those who lived while the ark was being built. Those who rejected God's salvation, they were in a spiritual prison. So guys that have held this view, Augustine, Calvin, and many more. Lots of people today would hold this view. And they would quote 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 saying, Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them, that's the key verse, the spirit of Christ in the prophets was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So, so these people would go and say, well, what, what the Apostle Peter is talking about here is um, not that Jesus was proclaiming to the spirits in prison. He, he, Noah was preaching at the time of the ark. The spirit of Christ was in him and all those who rejected him we're in a spiritual prison. So that's the first view. The second view. Christ went into what the Bible calls Sheol between his death and resurrection and preached to the Old Testament saints. The idea here is that Sheol, some kind of holding tank, some purgatory-like holding tank, and he gave them another opportunity to repent. Many Protestants would just straight up reject this view because we believe that man is appointed to die once and after that face judgment. So this view would be held by probably Roman Catholics but is not typically held in Protestant circles. The third view, this is where it gets really interesting, 
that Christ's proclamation of victory was over the evil angels from Genesis 6. If you know the story about the angels leaving their post and the Nephilim and the giants, that he was preaching to the evil angels and they will cite 2 Peter 2, 4 to 5 and the book of Enoch, which many people say that Peter was just funneling ideas from the book of Enoch in, in this verse, which is a non-canonical book in the Bible. Um, they would cite 2 Peter 2, 4 to 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald, preacher, a herald means preacher, of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And they would also go to Jude. I think it's Jude uh, 6 where it talks about evil angels being held in, in, in the dungeon. So those are the three views. We, we're not going to focus anymore about, uh, on the views. What we want to do is say, okay, what, what is clear here? And what is the overall purpose of Peter's letter? Anytime you're reading scripture and you're in a letter or a, a historical book or the gospels, you have to say, okay, well, what, what is the purpose of, of the chapter I'm in? What is the purpose of the letter that I'm in? And, and how does that inform how I understand what's going on here? I'm not gonna claim I, I have this scripture figured out, but like I said before, the main things in scripture are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. That's how we have to operate when, when we read the Bible. So think about, that. let's back up for a moment. What is the context of the letter of First Peter? You guys have been hearing about it for, for weeks. They were few in number. They were beginning to be persecuted in the Roman Empire. They had absolutely no power. They had no government protection. They didn't have what we have as Christians today, which are big institutions, colleges, seminaries, blogs, all sorts of support. They had none of that. They were about to be experiencing persecution to the point of death. Not quite yet, as Peter writes this letter, but they're about to, to, to be walking into that. But they were few in number and, and few or little in power in the midst of a huge empire and powerful empire. That's the context of the letter. And Peter says in, in 19 and 20, I think we have a clue here, when he talks about Noah in the ark, and he says, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So he says a few, and then he clarifies and adds to that, saying eight. I think Peter here is focusing right now on a very small 
amount of people living in a world where everyone ideologically, philosophically, is against them. And he's trying to encourage the Christians here in the Roman Empire. And he talks about the story of the flood, and water, and judgment, and the saving of, of a few people. I think we really got to check our, our hearts, especially as American Christians, that we sometimes think about numbers as the stamp of, of God's approval on on whatever we're doing. And, and I know this is true. <clears throat> I've experienced it in my own ministry, and I know many of you have, where you start a ministry and you're like, well, I only got this many people. And it's all about numbers. And you think if God sends numbers, then he must be stamping the authenticity and he's affirming what, what I'm doing in my ministry. And I would just try to exhort us that that's not anywhere in the Bible. In fact, if we look at Jesus' ministry, he continually trimmed things down. Oh, you're, you're following me? Well, let's see if you're following me for the right reasons. Numbers does not mean success. I had a, a friend in years ago, and there was a conversation we would have about John Lennon's song, Imagine, which probably talked about that song a number of times in, in sermons. I, I love the song, but I think lyrics are terrible. It, it, it's not. In fact, f philosophers and theologians call it the My Little Pony of, of philosophy. They're just saying this is, this is, he hasn't thought this through. This isn't um, good philosophy. But I had a friend who would say, that song is singing truth. And the reason that it's true is because the masses flock to it. Why would so many people love the song Imagine if it wasn't true? That was his argument. And that's honestly our argument on a lot of things. Well, this thing's successful. It must be doing well. And... Peter here is encouraging the Christians in the Roman Empire, and he's saying eight people got it right. Eight. The rest of humanity was damned. Think about that for a moment. Eight persons were brought safely through the judgment, through the water. Hundreds of thousands, millions we're not. Peter is saying eight people got it right. Jesus says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. It leads to life and those who find it are few. Peter's calling forth a reality here to the Christians that he's trying to comfort. And he's saying, you, I know you feel like everyone's against you. You're in your job and you say that I, I love Jesus as Lord, but all these people are saying I'm worshiping Caesar as Lord, and I'm worshiping this God, and they're asking you, why do you not do it? And Peter is saying here, don't worry. 
There's a judgment coming and you will be on the right side of the judgment. And he's encouraging them with this. You can't imagine how Noah must have felt. He's in the middle of a desert. He's building a, a, a massive boat, the ark. He's responding to God's word. Who knows if the people around him were indifferent, were mocking. We, we don't know. I, I would imagine there would be a lot of, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? You're crazy. There's Noah. He's He's nuts. And I would ask you this morning, have you been in situations for your faith where you have felt like that? Where there's been just a group of people around you and they might be mocking the Christian faith or mocking the Christian position on marriage or gender and you just feel small. And here we have a letter where Peter is trying to encourage you and he's saying, don't worry, you're not on the wrong side of history. You want to know how to be on the right side of history? On the side of Jesus and the cross. God. All right, the, the text continues, and it, and it doesn't get any easier. Um, now Peter goes into another text in 21 where, where many people have had trouble with, with this, and um, I feel like I have a bit more clarity on, on this one than, than the previous two. So he, in, in talking about Noah and the flood and judgment, Peter goes on in 321, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're a good Protestant Christian, you've got to be asking, Baptism saves you? Because all throughout Scripture, it's teaching something else, that we are saved when we believe with faith. And Peter is saying here, baptism, which corresponds to the flood, now saves you. We have the, the thief on the cross who, right before he dies, he, he confesses Jesus as Lord, and, and Jesus says what to him? You will be with me today in paradise. He didn't get baptized. We have Ephesians 1.13, when you, you received the Holy Spirit, when you believed the word. So all throughout scripture, it's very clear that we are saved through faith. So why is Peter calling baptism the thing that, that saves us? Well, I, I think if we take his own words, he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying baptism saves you, but then he goes on to say, not like you're thinking, not the actual act of going in the water and out of the water. That, that doesn't save you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is in line with what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10. Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, 
and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The Greek word Peter is using for corresponds, when he says baptism corresponds to this, it's antitypos, and it's our word antitype. And I don't know if there's any English majors out there, but if you know what a a type and an antitype is, um, biblically speaking, you have a type, which is a symbol that points to the antitype, which is the thing that it's pointing to. Peter is saying here, baptism, which is the antitype, now saves you. This is... This is, again, this is not easy if we're thinking about this. Peter is now saying baptism, which is what? It's a sign. It's a, we use it as Christians. It's a sign, one of the two signs in the New Covenant, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism points to something bigger than itself. And Peter is saying this type in the Old Testament, the flood, is pointing to the antitype, the real thing, which is baptism. But baptism is a symbol. So this is confusing. If we're thinking through this, we should be a bit confused. Peter is saying that baptism is the thing that the flood was pointing to. And I want to I want to ask you to consider for me a moment. I know this is not typical. We're we're getting pretty cerebral here. This text is pushing it in a way that isn't typical. Um, but I just want you to think for a minute with me. All throughout the New Testament, Paul uses a sign of the Old Covenant to call people believers or unbelievers. Does anyone know what that sign is that Paul uses? Circumcision. Right? He uses circumcision. In fact, he so takes the sign of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, one of the signs, And what that sign represents, which is a renewed heart. And he fuses them together where he actually calls believers the circumcision. He takes the sign of the covenant and what it represents and he fuses it together. And he calls believers circumcision. I'll show you right now in case you're wondering. Never heard that before. What's this guy saying? Um, Philippians 3, 2 to 3. Paul says this, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he's talking about people that are telling Christians they need to be circumcised, and he's saying these people are dogs. You don't have to do that, is basically his argument. And then he says, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, we are the sign. Circumcision is the sign pointing to the reality of a new life, a new heart in Christ. And Paul takes that sign and fuses it together with the actual thing. And that's what I believe Peter is doing here with baptism. Baptism now saves you. Baptism is the sign. And he's just fusing that together and saying, hey, you're you're saved through baptism. He's assuming that Christians are getting baptized. Which begs the question, have you ever considered baptism as done in the New Testament? 
Maybe you're in here and you're, you're a believer and you, you have given your life to Christ and you believe, but you haven't been baptized. And I would just gently nudge you and say, in the New Testament, there was no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. Christians were baptized. That, it was so fused together that Peter can say, baptism saves you. Have you made an appeal to God for a good conscience? Have you cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I, I, I cannot be Lord of my life. I need you. Have you done that? And if you haven't, and, and maybe you're in here and you're exploring and, and you're like, I'm just trying to figure out what this Bible thing is all about, what this Jesus is all about that you guys talk about, I'm not fully in, and I would just ask you one question. What do you do with your guilt? Because you've got to do something with it. You're either going to take the guilt and you're going to justify, 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 even though deep down in your heart you know that you're wrong, and that's going to create a whole tension in your inner being, or you're going to bury it so deep that you can't even talk about it. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your shame? The cross of Jesus Christ washes you of your guilt and your shame, cleanses you, frees you in a way that nothing else in this world, every other philosophy in this world, every other ideology, Every other religion is only going to shackle you and put chains on you. The gospel frees you. The cross frees you. Peter here is comforting the Christians in the Roman Empire. He's telling them, you are few, they are many, judgment is coming, and you've been saved through that judgment. And if you're in here and you're not a Christian, your guilt has not been dealt with. And you do stand guilty before a holy, righteous, just God. And there is a judgment coming. The Bible is very clear about it. The New Testament, the absolute bloodiest, scariest book in the New Testament is the last book. Revelation, it's all about the judgment of God. And if you know Christ, you, you stand at the day of the Lord. But if you don't know Christ, that'll be a terrifying day. I would just ask you to consider that. Evan's been doing a great job in, in the few sermons that he's done in 1 Peter and one of the things that, that Evan's been kind of pressing us on that, that it's so true and we need to be considering it is that Peter is an eyewitness. So Peter's writing, we're not talking about some dude that inherited this from, from someone else. We, we're actually reading the words of a man who was a friend of the Savior. He walked with him, he ate with him, he watched him die on the cross, he saw him resurrected and he saw him ascend. He saw it all. He was an apostle because 
He saw it all. And Peter says here in our, our last verse, he says, of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What Peter's referring to here is nothing less than the point of all of Scripture. Jesus Christ has ascended his rightful kingship into heaven, and he has power over the angels and the authorities. Everything is subjected to him. Everything. When we think about the ascension, this is the the stamp of the kingship and the lordship of Jesus. And a lot of us can be quick to say, yeah, he's my savior, but he's Lord. He's king. He's sovereign. He's providential over all things. Do you live your life with you on the throne or with him? On the throne. And I would ask that question in another way. Jesus is the word become flesh. When considering decisions in your life, are you consulting the word become flesh through the word of God? Decisions about money, broken relationships, intimacy. How do I deal with lust, gossip, Do you seek the counsel of the word or does that not even enter into your thinking? Because that's what it means for Jesus to be Lord of your life is to to look at him and the word that he has given and saying, I'm not going to go my way. I know my way wants to go here and with all of my heart, I feel my desires and everything here. I might be angry. I might be filled with lust. I might be filled with hate. I want to go here, but the Bible says go this way. It's contrary to our our nature, but it's good. When we do it, we flourish. We live good lives because God is good and he's not trying to take from us. He's giving to us. Jesus Christ is Lord. By him, all things were created. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the maker of heaven and earth. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made. Jesus Christ is King and Lord. Amen. And that's what this ascension is right here that Peter's talking about. He's gone into heaven, and Peter watched it. He saw him go into heaven, and he's at the right hand of God, and angels and authorities and all powers, everything is subject to Jesus. I would ask you this, why in the world do you want to trust your own instincts when time after time they have betrayed you? The Bible has a word for for how to live. And when we come under that, we are operating with Jesus as Lord. When we say, who cares about that? I love Jesus, but I don't care about his word. I don't know what we're doing. I don't know what that is. He's, I would question, do you, do you know him? Because if you know him, 
like we read earlier, your mouth is shut. I don't have it, Lord. Your ways are higher than my ways. Speak to me. Patrick Schreiner says of the ascension, in the Messiah's ascent, flesh is brought up to the spiritual realm where God resides, showing he will forever dwell with humanity. The ascension, therefore, verifies the incarnation. What looked like humiliation to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks God vindicates. This makes Christ's humiliation his victory. And the centralizing force for much of the New Testament, the ascension lifted the veil on Christ's glorious cross. It was the event of self-declaration. And I would say that so important is the ascension of Christ that when after the resurrection, when Mary is kind of like, Jesus, stay here, And what does Jesus say in John 20? I I think we have it. He says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. All right, let's come all, all the way back around full circle. Peter is saying, you can suffer and suffer like Christ, and suffer with Christ. Not as someone who's defeated, but you suffer in victory. Jesus Christ has won the victory. The battle is won. This is our future with him in in Christ. The battle is won. All angels, all authorities, all powers are subject to him. It's complete and total victory. All right, so we are going to take communion today. So if you don't have a cup, make sure that you get one in the back. Mary's in the back with extras if anyone needs one. Baptism is one of the signs of, of the new covenant, and baptism signifies passing from death to life, and its entry into the New Covenant community. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing sign to be practiced by Christians, which signifies the continual feasting on Jesus. And much more than that, but but for today's purposes, that's it. But I want you to notice when we read Scripture today that Jesus is going to do what we heard Paul do with circumcision and what we also read from Peter with baptism. Jesus is actually going to take the signs of the Lord's Supper, which is a new covenant sign, and he is going to fuse it together with what it represents. Okay, so as we go through this, I I hope and pray that you'll see what what Jesus is doing and how that corresponds to to what I think Peter was doing with baptism. Before we take that, I would just like to give a moment for you to just work in your own heart and think about Christ and him as Lord and and Savior. And maybe you don't know him. And if you don't know him and, and you don't have a relationship with him, we would just ask that you kindly um, pass on this.
this. Don't take the supper. This is for believers. So take a moment right now to just examine your heart before the Lord. any of you are in any defiant sin or relational conflict that you can repent of to the Lord now do it he died for you died for you on the cross he loves you On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink. Heavenly Father, we come to you today as saints in need of a Savior, in need of a King, in need of a Lord. Lord, we just ask that through the text that we just went through that you untangle any of the unclear parts in our heart and our mind. We pray that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts in areas that this text needs to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the righteous one suffered for us, the unrighteous. And that through that, he has brought us to God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Faith Podcast. At Vintage Faith, our vision is to help people who are far from God to become totally devoted followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast brought you closer to God. For more information, check us out at VintageFaithCicero.com.